This is the Packet Pushes podcast. And you know what? A few months ago in January, we all got uh, we got a crew together to go and do Network Field Day as part of the Tech Field Day program. And as always, Tech Field Day is an, is an awesome way to get in touch with vendors and find out what's happening because there's really no other event where you can get 12 vendors inside of three days and get a, a, like a mega brain dump. It's a real uh, marathon, nerd marathon, if you will, trying to get through the whole event. And uh, so what we've done is we got together with a couple of other people from the Network Field Day event um, and worked our way through the nerd fest of presentation and questions. We had eight companies presenting in total, and I thought it would be informative to share a little bit about what we learned and some of the discussion. And so joining me today is Drew Connery-Murray, as always, and we've invited two delegates. We've got Yvonne Sharp and Kevin Myers. So briefly, Yvonne, why don't you introduce yourself to the audience? I'm Yvonne Sharp. I work for a large healthcare enterprise as a consulting network engineer. You can find me on Twitter at Sharp Network. And one of the most cynical Twitter people on that I I follow today. I'm I'm so pleased. That's I take that as a compliment. Yeah, that is a compliment <laughs> from Greg. If you if you can tick his cynicism radar, that's that's impressive. <laughs> I think you and I go backwards and forwards on Twitter sometime with snark and and uh, and general uh, disillusionment. It's a lot of fun. And also with us today is Kevin Myers. Tell people about you. Yeah, sure. My name is Kevin Myers. I'm a network architect uh, and co-founder of IP Architects. We do a lot of uh, white box. Open networking, uh, consulting, and integration with traditional network vendors. But you have a background, though, in more traditional networking. When I say traditional, I mean, you know, branded, you know, Cisco, Juniper, et cetera, et cetera. But now you're more into the white box. Is that what you're doing? Yeah, absolutely. So like everybody else, I, I did. I came from a, traditionally a Cisco uh, background, worked in service provider and, and large enterprise and kind of, you know, worked my way into, you know, some of the white box and open and, and uh, you know, cost-effective network uh, vendor realms. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, maybe that'll come out in the discussion today. So what we've done is instead of organizing the discussion around, let's go through each of the companies and talk about what they said, we sort of identified four major themes that came out of the event overall. One was software-defined WAN. And yes, we know we've talked about that a lot over the last year, but guess what? It's huge. And that's what people are talking about. We had uh, got a topic around white box, and then we had some presentations more focused on analytics. And then finally, we've got some orchestration and automation topics. So let's kick off the discussion around the software-defined WAN. And um, uh, Yvonne, I know you've been doing a lot of work around this software-defined WAN, so why don't you kick off the discussion? Sure. Um, from a production standpoint, I'm familiar with Viptela. We have a, a Viptela deployment where I work. Um, but we also heard from Riverbed and Silver Peak while we were out um, in San Jose. Um, and they had some really interesting things to say. I think for me, one of the things that's interesting is looking at um, the difference in vendors that come from a WAN optimization background um, and those who have a more solid route switch background. Um, they, they seem to approach the product a little bit differently, um, and those, those things are, are interesting to me. There's lots of conversation around how we do app ID. We had a long conversation at Silver Peak about their, their first packet app ID, which is really more um, an IP DNS list to help determine um, the, the app of the traffic. Um, we talked mm. about cloud deployment, um, all kinds of uh, neat things that mm. our SD-WAN vendors are, are doing today. I guess the thing about Silverpeak that I came away with was that they're very much bringing their WAN acceleration background with them. So although you can use the product as a software-defined WAN, the Silverpeak approach to WAN acceleration was to use tunneling and then use a lot of advanced math and a lot of predictive analytics to know when packets, you know, to predictively sort of be aware of when packet loss or if the circuit performance is changing. And they're bringing that to their SD-WAN so that they've got really fine-grained control over packet performance in the tunnels. I think one of my takeaways from both 
uh, Riverbed and Silver Peak was that user interface really matters now. We historically come from a background where uh, it's all CLI. Any user interface was was horrible and written in Java and, and was practically useless if you really wanted to accomplish real things. Um, and that's all changing with SD-WAN and, and the user interface is becoming a big part of the selling point of the product, I believe. And the ease of administration, the ease of deployment, even to the cloud, it's a, a vast difference from what we are used to with CLI-based product. Mm. Isn't it funny? It's like um, uh, that suddenly we're talking about you know, how good the user interface is and how easy it is to add a box to the network or add a rule to the whole thing. I did a video blog on this about uh, from the Riverbed presentation where they just gave us a demo of, you know, everybody who's in this Active Directory group can access this website. Boom. Now, doing that in a legacy router would be like a six-month project that would require a team of three or four people to do that. And they did it in, in the room sort of thing. Right. I mean, so the user identification is a big deal. And uh, and I know that Riverbed talked about that a bit. I, I, w- I would say that their uh, user ID- identification still needs a little work because it, it's still fairly manual. But mm. you can see that they're building out a framework to do that. And yet traditionally, th- there was no way to map IP addresses to user groups without a another service that runs somewhere else on the network that may or may not work all the time and that would be um, only barely mm. uh, reliable, right? People would get the wrong policy because the user ID to mm. uh, IP mapping would get munched somehow. Right. So you think there's some weakness in there? The fact that we're using Active Directory as a as an ID process is weak relatively because at the end of the day gets mapped to an IP address or is because the app ID functions in Riverbed's SD-WAN isn't, you know, it's hard to recognize that traffic. Yeah. Well, what I remember from the demo is if you wanted to map MAC addresses to user ID, that that was somewhat of a manual process, right? So once you get the mapping, you're good, right? And you use Active Directory groups to determine policy, which is wonderful. But Mm. how do we get, user ID mapping to the packets on the network. I think that's still a problem that we're continuing to solve. Um, It's not an easy thing to do. Mm -hmm. One thing that jumped out to me um, from both Silver Peak and Riverbed is that application identification is is really key to this, this whole product category. But when you start asking these vendors well, how are you doing application identification if we're dealing with uh, TLS or HTTPS? And they kind of go a little quiet and get a little squirrely when, when talking about how they're breaking that encrypted chain. From where I sit, like, I don't want them to break encryption, right? Not to determine path. It, you know, if we're talking about path selection, you know what I'm saying? But isn't that the whole enchilada with SD-WAN, right? <laughs> right, I mean, well, you shouldn't need to break into the packet to do that. And see, I come down on a different side of that because for me, and, and I, I, I live across a couple different worlds, enterprise and service provider, and then some really odd use cases being some of them that, you know, and Greg and I talk, some of these are corner cases, but sometimes you, you do have to, you don't have a choice but to do that. You know, if you want to be able to, if you want to sit on a cruise ship or you want to be on an airplane and you want access to certain content, you know, that may be a compromise you have to make. Not everybody may want to do that, but I think the ability to do that is, is interesting, even if we still have to try to figure out how do we secure this and how do we deal with this. 
there's a lot of information available about an application without having to break into the packet. And I, and I think we start there. Um, granted, depending on the type of traffic it is, you have to go a little deeper. But, but I mean, you can, you can see certificate headers without doing deep packet inspection. And I think, yeah. um, you know, well, source destination port protocol, those are still like the envelope addressing pieces of information that we have available to us. And they well, can right. be and, valuable still. And that's, a, yeah. and that's a fair point. But what I was going to say is, you know, when you, as we talked about the way, I don't know if we've gotten into this, but the WAN op, the marrying of WAN op and uh, the SD-WAN, you know, that's where you kind of bring those two together because you may have a use case where you want to marry the offload of being in the middle of those certificates and the WAN op piece because you have a use case for that. So I totally get what you're saying about there's other ways to do this, but, you know, if you're marrying the WAN op and the SD-WAN together, that may be your play. Well, I think it's, I think it's not so much about the, the IP header. It's also about the flow. So uh, what the SD-WAN vendors are looking for is not to be able to just, you know, fingerprint the TCP header and the IP header and say, you know, we know something about this. It's much more about, hang on, I've been calculating packets that are going to this destination IP address. It's obviously an Active Directory server. Therefore, I can now start to apply an app ID that says this is Active Directory traffic whenever that IP address. So where before we were doing this statelessly, that is, every packet was analyzed in its own right and you had to rely on the data inside the payload to give you data, really now it's about the flow. So if I see you know, a client attached to an Active Directory server to perform authentication, I can fingerprint that flow and then know that everything that goes to that must be an Active Directory server. I'll need to refresh that and state and so forth at time. But effectively, the SD-WAN Edge device isn't a state like routers. The traditional router and switch is stateless. It has a cache, and that's its limit of state. Anytime the cache is flushed, it has to rebuild its table, assuming nothing. SD-WAN appliances have um, engines or, or fingerprints or databases or, or stores of, of known states so that it can interpret the application itself. So as the packet flows through, you can say, hang on, that matches my ID for an Active Directory session. Oh, I know that's Active Directory. Now I can apply this stuff to it. Does that make sense? Well, absolutely. And, and in my mind, that's where... Uh, maybe more traditional networking vendors who are trying to be SD-WAN vendors fall down, right, is that flow determination, right? So how do I make sure that, that the integrity of this flow um, is maintained and it doesn't go three different directions and the packets all arrive out of order to where the application can't understand what's going on? I mean, the, the flow determination is, is key, yeah, and I agree with that because that's what we look to SD-WAN. That's a problem we look to them to solve is, you know, I can go write the most complex, you know, script and routing policy in the world and try to, you know, throw this traffic down all these different paths. But at the end of the day, it's the ability to, you know, more dynamically look at that and set policy that we're all after, you know, and then be able to correctly do that. Yeah, and I mean, that. I think that's interesting as well because um, I think we're starting to see the, the divergence from, you know, I've got an interface I need to route from left to right, I need to know where that is because to a much more flow-centric, path-centric, stateful approach to networking away from the, you know, we treat every packet as a unique snowflake. So we have to look it up and look into it and decide where each, but packets don't live like that. They're part of a flow. There's normally thousands of packets in a single session. So we don't have to handle each one individually. Right. Yeah. And it pains me to say it because I'm a routing guy. It's my most favorite thing to do in the world. But we're, we're trying to be an app centric, you know, we're trying to be app centric engineers. We want to be app centric because ultimately we've recognized that, you know, the tools we have from an application standpoint and an enterprise standpoint, just they don't get the job done. Well, we know they don't get the job done because that's why SD-WAN exists. What about, 
<laughs> Honestly, you know, you just got to think that OSPF is really, you know, 1970s called. They want their algorithm. Back. <laughs> <laughs> <It's Yeah>. like, <laughs> so I'm curious to, to find out from the group. We're pretty clear on the, the use cases, the business benefits for SD-WAN. Now the issue is turning out, well, who do I choose? Because there's at least 20 vendors out there offering, you know, based on a quick data sheet, pretty much the same thing. Did anything jump out to anyone about how you can start distinguishing who's going to get on your short list? One of the things to me that jumped out after being in San Jose, was, and, and, and this hadn't solidified in my mind before we went out there, was that the ability to do cloud deployment is a central function of SD-WAN. And any SD-WAN vendor who can't rapidly deploy um, their solution into the cloud is not really an SD-WAN vendor in my mind. I know that that's probably still debatable, but uh, to me, it's a software solution. And you should be able to deploy it in the cloud and have it be part of your SD-WAN fabric relatively simply. So you mean like an AWS or an Azure get an instance up in there? Exactly. And then your AWS or Azure environment or cloud of choice, right? It becomes part of your WAN by definition. So any existing policy that you have, any specific routes, any security policy about what traffic goes where to meet certain security requirements, that just rolls into your fabric and you control it with policy the way you do every other site. So it, it, it really simplifies um, connectivity into the cloud. I know we're, we're doing that right now. We, we've got a, uh, we're doing some Azure development and we've got Viptela VM sitting out in Azure. Um, and, and so now all of our Azure, Azure resources are connected directly to that uh, Viptela v- VM, and they're just part of our WAN now. Mm-hmm. Um, it dramatically simplifies um, connecting to the cloud. So there's two things there. One is the that you can have your network edge or your WAN edge is actually in the cloud, whether it's Azure, AWS, or whoever. And I think the second thing is the fact that you're using cloud services to drive the management system or the STN controller. Right. Yeah. So, and I think that's new too, because in the past, you know, networking devices have always been autonomous, standalone. We don't connect them together. We don't want them, you know, they're not one system. Each one's a a purely, you know, beautifully individual handcrafted snowflake. It's not part of an overall system, right? And I think one of the most daunting things about SD-WAN that I think people don't take into account is all of a sudden, all your WAN devices are just a, a dot on a screen in a console, then you can configure them by clicking stuff. And it actually works. It doesn't, the system is not brittle or fragile. When you configure these SD-WANs, they just do what much more than you would think. They do the things they're supposed to do without, you know, barfing every 10 minutes like a con, like a CLI does. Because I was going to say, that the top-down view that we saw in some of these, going back to the UI that Yv- Yvonne mentioned, getting a top-down view of the network, of the WAN, like we have, I mean, there's probably a few products that could do that in today's world, but getting that top-down view and that ease of configuration and the point-and-click is, a lot of us haven't ever had that before. You know, that's, that's a huge selling point. And the analytics, right? Because your network knows about the network, right? It doesn't just know about its neighbor, um, and so the visibility into the, the quality service you're getting from your carriers. You know, I sent this packet in, in on this side, but I never got it on that side. Your network now knows that more holistically and can report back to you. This is uh, lost latency jitter on your links, and it can compare 
the quality of two different links between the same endpoints and really tell you what the quality of service is on those links. And that's been really difficult information to gather historically. It's huge. <laughs> yeah, you used to go and buy appliances that you know, um, would sit in the flow and then start this like dedicated hardware appliances that would capture the packets maybe as a net flow or as a span port and try and tell you the performance of application flows. Um, or you know. they, they would send traffic on your network to measure it, right? Mm. So, so you're using valuable bandwidth just to tell you what your circuit is doing. Um, <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> you know th those are really arcane now in in this kind of a world. Uh, there's still lots of great uses for flow data, and I don't mean to say that there aren't, but no. Um, but from performance and circuit quality, um, I, I've never seen anything as informative and helpful as as what SD WAN solutions are today. And it's so inherent. Like, so we saw we had a demo there from Juniper talking about how their telemetry system works and how their ability they're building into Junos the ability to stream telemetry data off the back of that. So I think in in some ways we're actually seeing this isn't just about SD-WAN, this is also your existing network equipment can be getting an upgrade to start supporting some of these features via telemetry interfaces. I think we all want the telemetry. I think that, you know, I, I've listened to a lot of the things, a lot of the shows you guys have done on, you know, telemetry, yeah. telemetry versus your, your traditional, let's pull the statistics out every five minutes. And there's definitely a use case there. So getting the telemetry, you know, married with the SD-WAN and that all kind of comes together as part of the same exercise. It's something that I think it makes sense to me. Yeah, I think, I think it's important because Junos is, um, you know, you sort of look at, Juniper routers and you kind of get I, I sort of look at them as kind of like a legacy thing but then the point that they made was that if you want to get really good telemetry data out of something that's got 100, 100 gig interfaces, your approach to telemetry has to be like wholly different because if you're going to stream that many data points, like SNMP can't even is, is only used because it it works for 100 interfaces because it's actually zero data and it's almost useless, right? But if you want to stream telemetry data at the sub-second intervals, you would need an operating system feature built right in that's going to work, you know, streaming data at gigabits per second out of that chassis. We've always been in the position where we have to limit how much data the network tells us about itself because it actually does harm to the network to tell us all that data. And I think we're we're entering an era where that equation is shifting and the network can tell us about itself without uh, participating in self-harm. <laughs> self-harm, that's great. Can't you see this is a cry for help? That, that's like the doctor's the first the first rule of what is it? Do no harm. Do no harm to your the network. The that's the first goes, rule. Right? Yeah, yeah, that's we need to adopt that as network engineers. Yeah, uh, I I, th I always I you know and self harm creates despondency, right? Exactly. Yeah, exactly. and despondency is a deep dejection arising from the conviction of the uselessness of further effort. <laughs> Welcome to corporate IT. It was a running joke <laughs> during the event to talk about you know all the things that make us despondent, and then Yvonne would always come up with the definition. Um, so moving on to white box, we had a lot of presentations which were no, normally, but uh, focused nominally focused on the white box direction. Although maybe it would be better to say merchant silicon standard operating systems, and then the apps that are on the devices are actually separated. So obviously the key presentation here was the one from Barefoot Networks. Drew, maybe you want to you know give it a go. Yeah. So Barefoot, uh, they released a new chip called Tofino and. The distinction here between what you might get from uh, uh, Broadcom is that Tofino is programmable. It uses an open source language called P4 
And the objective here is that you can get right down into the guts of the ASIC to decide how it's going to um, process the packet, what the pipeline uh, process is for your packets. If, if you need to do this kind of thing, and likely you're one of the web scale companies if you need this kind of control, but it's now available and coming to market through Barefoot. And frankly, mm. this Barefoot presentation, you know, of all the presentations we saw, this was the one I think that uh, kind of blew everybody away in the room. Yeah, and I'll just say, like, I have never been excited by silicon, right? I mean, it, it's a chip. It does what it does. It needs to forward packets. The speeds and feeds have never been all that interesting to me. But the, the barefoot presentation was phenomenal. Um, I, I would recommend anybody go find that um, on Tech Field Day's page and just uh, watch um, Nick's presentation because it really is a shift in thinking for how we have looked at networking hardware um, and it, it, I believe that it, it will revolutionize how we look at, at networking hardware, which is exciting because we haven't done that in a long, long time. <laughs> God, goodness knows we needed something new to happen, that's for sure. So just to summarize, maybe to summarize that is that Barefoot has released the Tofino chipset. They've effectively come out of stealth mode, I guess is what you would call it. Um, the chip is actually like a fully programmable forwarding plane. So in the past, the ASICs that we have are fixed. That is, at the time that the, the chips are actually made, the functions that are in the silicon are wired in when the silicon is laid down onto the onto the, the substrate. And what Barefoot has done is said, you know, if you just thought about this and treated the switching ASIC as much more of like a, a processor, and and the, and it's all explained in the presentation. What they're actually doing is using um, duplicate arrays. It's similar to what Cavium has been doing something similar, but Barefoot's taken it to its logical extension, I think. So what they're saying is you can actually program everything about a packet, and it's completely within your control. Now, not only have they developed a chip, but they've also developed a software to sit on top of it so that you can have a language that says... If you want the, the 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 silicon to forward an IP packet in this format, just use this P4 language, which is uh, I can't remember. It's got four P's basically, and the four you know programmable packet blah 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 blah. There's some synonym around that, but so the idea would be is that if you wanted to start defining your own MPLS tag, maybe you don't think that 20 bits in an MPLS tag is enough. You want to define a 120 bit MPLS tag that you Add, as you add data as it crosses a switch or you delete the data as it crosses a switch because, oh, you know, you can't, maybe the server's not going to understand that. So this is the sort of thing that we're heading towards where instead of waiting for, you know, standards bodies to ratify VXLAN or NVGRE or NVO3 or whatever it's going to be, why can't you just reprogram the ASIC to say, this is my packet format and do this with it when you see these bits in the in these header frames? And um one of the most common use cases is to use the TCP options header as a signaling packet, as a packet signal, because it's not used for anything else today. So if you could start putting data into the TCP options header and rewriting that, you could start carrying signaling, in-band signaling information in the packet, which is really incredibly exciting because all of a sudden you could see switches that would last for a decade. And as the software changes on top of the switch, the silicon continue to adapt and change to new formats, new protocols, to new systems, which is the problem we have today. That's a great characterization of it, Greg. And I think it's also kind of touches on NFV because that's something I, I know in my world, you know, you're really, you, that's what you want to see. You want to see this hardware that becomes more extensible and more adaptable that you can then change the software as you, you know, maybe your design refreshes my software and my use case of my software changes every three to five years instead of always having to recycle the hardware piece. And so that's really interesting to me, that concept. Hmm. Well, and for those of us in the doldrums of enterprise IT, um, you know, when you put a campus switch out there, it's there until it dies. 
You know, I mean, hmm. we just you, because campus switching is not really exciting. But the idea that you could um, that there could be brand new networking protocols that, that we've never dealt with before. And you could install software on your existing switch to take advantage of those. Everything from user ID to security to um, custom apps built in your devices to identify network traffic or apps or uh, I mean the possibilities are huge and uh, you know we're, we're really yeah. a, a generation a hardware generation away from being able to do that which is really yeah. exciting and one thing that they pointed out is that part of the magic here isn't necessarily addition you know ha- having more features adding more features is that you can start to subtract things that you don't want if you don't need the the processor to do x y and z functions if you're not using you it yeah, that's it. right yeah if you're not using it for switching yeah you don't get these bloated feature sets that are mm-hmm. slowing down the system and maybe carrying vulnerabilities or whatever they're going to you know brick a box at some point you don't have to yeah. have them yeah, so your Broadcom Trident Silicon that you have today, or Jericho or June, whichever chipset you're using, has an L2 function. Well, if you're only using your boxes and layer three router, why are you going through the L2 function? Just take it out, right? And then that should be more reliable. Less code means more reliability. But I also think, I think one of the things that we haven't seen talked about and hasn't come out yet is in the longer term, and this is a longer term because it'll take time, imagine your um, chassis switch. Today, every time there's a new spin of silicon that comes out from like Cisco for the Nexus 7000, you have to replace the line cards. And when you replace the line cards, they want to replace the core switching engine as well. And next thing you know, you've got a massive outage, a huge amount of cost, and all you're doing is going from 40 gig to 100 gig or something like that. Well, if you've got a piece of silicon inside there that's just you know, flexible and reprogrammable, you're going to have to do less pulls, less replacements of those line cards over time. That's huge. Uh, to, I mean, as somebody coming from, you know, some of the data center world, I think, Greg, you and I talked a lot about Nexus and data center deployments and that, that specific problem right there. Being able to mitigate that and minimize that downtime because, I mean, the number, I do a fair amount of enterprise consulting as well, and I, I've got about four or five maintenance windows stacked up right now because of that very specific problem. They're just on hold. Mm. Just because you want to put a new line cut in. And, and there's always the fear. I mean, the thing about chassis is it seems to be very difficult for the vendors to make them stable and reliable. And every time you pull a line card, they're just as likely to blow up and not come back. <laughs> yeah, well, no, that's feature- exactly what happens. They blow up, yeah. yeah. And feature incompatibility, right? I mean, you, you, you reach the end of life of a particular hardware line and, uh, and, and you can't keep the same software. You, you, you have to upgrade your, your, hard, your, uh, your OS and, mm. and we all um, work support cases with strange software bugs um, that we could not have anticipated. Um, and, and the idea that we can uh, decouple the, the software from the hardware and, uh, and, and change them independently of one another, to me, is really exciting. Mm. Well, and moving on that, too, I think the other thing, and this is the thing I'm seeing in my, in, uh, my world of, you know, some of the white box consulting and, and merchant silicon is hey, the idea that I can buy a chassis for a specific purpose. And then I think, Greg, as you and Drew had mentioned, stripping out what I don't need. And then I, I get my sets of code that I need. So this is my routing build and this is going to be my switching build. But I may use the same chassis or the same, you know, same switch or the same set of switches. And so things become a lot more standardized and a lot more cookie cutter because I can pick and choose what I want and roll the same box for different, you know, different functions. So maybe this is a good time to transition to Big Switch, who also presented, and you know, Barefoot is really fascinating and some cutting-edge stuff, but maybe a little bit outside the normal operations of a lot of our listeners. But Big Switch is doing stuff that could apply to your data center today. And Kevin, I think you were really interested in what they were up to. 
Yeah, I was. I actually did some labbing in Big Switch uh, this weekend because I did the hardware they work on. You know, I've dealt with some of that hardware, and so I wanted to see what the software play was. And the thing that stood out to me, I think they presented on the security architecture at Network Field Day, which is an extension to their their um, their big cloud fabric. But the the ease at which you can deploy things and, and do it in the enterprise. I mean, I think. You know, any of us that have dealt in the enterprise know that if I want to connect a hypervisor to an enterprise network and then deploy a certain VLANs to spin up, you know, VMs, that may be, you know, one, two, three weeks, depending on your, your org to spin that up. And with, um, with Big Switch, it was like, it was, it was like a few seconds, you know, it was an immediate provisioning. And it was also, you know, a very intuitive graphical interface to be able to go see the state of the network, you know, uh, and you had provisioning integration with hypervisors, Kubernetes, Docker. I mean, it's kind of a one-stop shopping for the data center. So, so there's the security fabric, the big security fabric, which they talked about, which is being used to um, capture packets around the network. So maybe you've got an existing network infrastructure and you want to be able to capture packets so that you can store them for analysis or pass them through an IPS or an IDS, and that's where they're headed. But what they've always – that's been around for a while. That's called the big monitoring fabric. What they're now doing is they're triggering – they're watching the flow data as it goes through the switch and then using that to trigger DDoS um, defenses. Um, and so just just like we talked about with SD-WAN, where the network is 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 more self-aware, um, where we don't just know about our neighbor, we don't just know about our adjacent port where we're handing data off to, you've got this intelligence in the network, overarching the network, that understands more about itself and can make decisions based on that. Um, mm -hmm. So that that's not a uniquely um, SD-WAN concept. We're also seeing that with, with big switch. Um, and, and other vendors, but, but I think Big Switch has a holistic vision for where they want to go with that, and they've got specific problems that they're solving um, uh, around security and visibility and monitoring and, and ease of orchestration and configuration. That's, that's mm. interesting. Yeah, that visibility component they definitely hammered on, you, you know, especially talking about how they can integrate with you know, a, a VMware environment or a hypervisor environment or a Docker environment so that you know, depending on what console you're in, if you're in VMware, you get one view of the network. But from Big Switch, you can also see what your virtualization infrastructure looks like as it relates to the network. And that kind of visibility can be really useful when you're trying to troubleshoot across silos. I think that starts to talk to, we're seeing the emergence of network functions virtualization. We've seen, you probably haven't talked about that much here, but, you know, this ability to take virtual firewalls and put them in line means that you have to be able to program the path through the data center or through the WAN or through the campus. And you say, I want this firewall, but if it's a virtual firewall, where does it exist? It could be on any VM anywhere in the infrastructure or increasingly we're seeing the rise of VMs or containers on switches themselves. So maybe you put a, a firewall on your campus switch, but now you've got to divert the, the user flows to go through that firewall so you can apply the control. To do that, you obviously, A, you have to be able to program the flows and you know, the traffic as it goes through the switch to, to, to policy, but you also have to have visibility to say, yes, I can certify that that is going through it. And that's the sort of stuff that Big Switch is doing. They're integrating with the VMs, whether it's OpenStack or whether it's containers, but they're also orchestrating with the physical switches to be able to do that, but also um, working on the virtual switches of the endpoints as well. And I, I thought that extension of, you know, to embrace the network wherever it might be was a, a switch or a transition I haven't noticed before. Well, if you think about that conceptually, as you move security closer to the edge, whether the edge is a VM or a campus uh, device, um, the, the more you can control those flows earlier on. How many of us have major choke points in our network today where we're driving traffic through 
just for security functions, just for IPS, IDS, malware inspection, DLP, you know, you, you name it. And, and we're, we're, we're routing traffic because we need that function. And if we can mm. distribute that function throughout the network, we're, we're dramatically going to reduce the load on our networks because we're dealing with the traffic the way it needs to be dealt with closer to the edge. Um, mm. It doesn't have to traverse half of the network before it gets to the firewall that says stop. Um, and I think that's a, that will significantly change how we architect and build our networks in the future if we can see this technology really come to fruition. And Yvonne, that, that kind of dovetails into something that I spend a lot of time in. I call it switch-centric architecture, but that's exactly what it is, is we, you know, everything old is new again. We used to joke about the router on the stick, and now we're, you know, everything in the data center is on a stick. You know, it's, we, we have the switch-centric architecture that we want to put the switch as the central focal point of everything, of orchestration, connection, you know, tying together routers, network devices, whatever it is. And that's a shift that, you know, we all appear to be headed towards, especially when you look at the security play where you can do, I think, what was a terabit in hardware by letting the switch handle it with the appropriate, you know, third-party devices in stream to do mitigation and instruct the switch to drop it. So, like you said, we no longer are limited by, I have this inline, you know, device where, you know, whether it's WANOP or IPS, IDS, you know, I can direct those flows through switching and VLANs and what have you and really have a much more scalable architecture. I, this is just so it's very difficult to explain these things on a podcast. I'm sitting here thinking of all the things that we saw and really you need to go and see the videos to some extent and to be spend your time immersed in thinking about this stuff to understand because if you've been stuck in a world of you know SNMP you know graphical web pages with SNMP as the only protocol that gathers data, you're I don't think you're going to grip this because it is a real there's a real transition in thinking you have to go through to get from I'm polling data using SNMP. You know, I reach out every 60 seconds to pull an SNMP MIB to I'm actually programming everything. And now because of that, I'm actually getting telemetry. I know how the network's configured. I've got new APIs that give me more visibility. You know, SNMP is the most trivial of APIs and the least capable. And now all of a sudden I've got it. And people are spending money on software to produce interfaces that are actually useful. So maybe it's very difficult to explain that. I'm just sort of reflecting over what we said and thinking that might be fairly opaque to a lot of people. What do you think? I think going through the videos is a helpful exercise because it not only to help flesh out design concepts and see it see it visually to be able to, to digest it, but also there's so much amazing content in there that, you know, things that, that I learned and even going back into previous tech field days, not only for the clarification, but just, there, I mean, there's just an immense amount of wonderful content that, that comes out of it. Well, and we all have those moments of cognitive dissonance where we're hearing something and we go, I, I know there's something there, but that just doesn't quite make sense to me. Hmm. Um, and, and I think sometimes it's just repetition and reading and, and like Kevin said, looking through the um, or watching the videos and and talking to colleagues and, and listening to podcasts. I mean, I think and over time that those concepts soak in by osmosis, but I don't think it's something that you're going to get in one conversation or one podcast or one video because you it really you have you're gonna have to restructure how you think about what the network is and how it functions and that's not a quick thing when we've got some of us more than others you know decades of networking experience under our belts Right, I don't Greg. want to. <laughs> Greg, I think that was you. Yeah, that was that was uh, that sounded like that was directed towards Greg. I'm feeling despondent. <laughs> <laughs> Tell me again what despondent is. A deep dejection arising from the conviction of the uselessness of further effort. I think that sums up my career perfectly. 
Is there a T-shirt for that? We need a, we need a T-shirt for that. That should be standard uh, standard apparel for the office. I, I don't know that I want the definition of despondent to be what people think of when they you know see, see my name or, or my Twitter handle. It's only, only it's only for Fridays. <laughs> I, I, promise, I promise you it accurately reflects my 25-year career in enterprise IT. It's pretty pretty accurate summary. Uh, I'm hopeful, though. I remain optimistically despondent. How's that? <laughs> <laughs> that that's some so, cognitive dissonance for me right there. Yeah. That's right. That's right. <laughs> what I'm actually hearing is uh, Drew's bullcrap alert going off. <laughs> <laughs> That's what he's really trying to say, but he's really polite about it. <laughs> so analytics, we talked a lot about visibility and telemetry already uh, in, in some of the other areas because they are kind of aligned. But we also had two companies, Neancer and Kentic, who are talking about their products. Um, who wants to have a shot at talking about what Neancer was talking about? You know, I'll probably take a shot at Neancer because I think we had a lot of disagreement over what exactly it was and what, you know, what the play was. And I think... The, where I see enterprises that are engaged in a lot of sites that have a lot, especially with wireless. I know I spend a lot of time in the retail sector and some other sectors, but wireless as an access medium is, it's been a hot thing for a while and it's not going away. So Neanta seems to have come out of the wireless space. And so one of the problems they seem to be trying to solve is I have all this, I have all this stuff. I have syslog, I have all these monitoring systems. And if I need to turn that over to a help desk or, or maybe a lower level engineer that's, you know, that's just started, how do I figure out where my problem is? Do I have, you know, channel overlap or do I have a you know, problem with the end device? And so they seem to be trying to get you this plain text troubleshooting methodology to turn it over to a help desk and say, here's, here's the problem, you know, and here's the, here's the data that I use to get to the problem. And I don't know that we saw a lot of use cases outside of wireless. I think they had them, but wireless seemed to be what we centered around. And that seems to be, it's interesting. I'd like to see it work and see, you know, if there'd be a fit in an enterprise there. Yeah, I think for me, when I looked at Niansa, I just didn't think I was the right audience for that that product. I I could see where uh, somebody who does a lot of help desk, client, end user troubleshooting would, mm. would get a lot of value out of it. But at um, at least at, at my, in my view of things, I'm never worried about just one client. Um, not that that's all that they look at, but their, their focus seems to be uh, endpoint specific, right? Like a client is having a problem and how do I know what's yeah. going on with that client? For me and my world, uh, that's not terribly helpful, it, it, but it may be for others, um, so but, but it didn't resonate with me. But a question for you, Yvonne, do you guys have like a, do you have a team that handles wireless? Is that something that you guys have a separate team that handles wireless and you guys focus uh, more on the route switch? No, our team does wire, the wireless infrastructure. Gotcha. Um, but, but we don't, we don't deal a lot with clients. Like, I mean, you know, our, our job is to determine whether or not there's a wireless infrastructure issue. Um, and then it's, it's somebody else's problem if, if we determine <laughs> that the wireless infrastructure is okay. Yeah, um, I think. Well, I mean, we're a, always I, able to help, but, you yeah. know, I, I'm not, I'm not going to mess with wireless drivers. I, I think there's a there's a shift here in that uh, if you're a network engineer, and especially if you're a higher level network engineer, everything you do is done in the network. And the users are, we know they're there and we care about them, but they're not the center of it. For us, we're very much about the, the system of the network as opposed to the users. And so when I come across these user monitoring or user analytics applications, I have to do this mental 
shift and I've had to learn how to do it because obviously as uh, you know I'm, I work on the campus when you start to get into the campus networks which is wireless you're very user focused you know what's the operation of my Apple iPhones running iOS 10 and is that different from iOS 9 is that different from iOS 8 oh it must be a driver problem now for most networking people that's a skill that we lost years ago because things got okay at the edge of the network and we kind of stopped worrying about it. And so when I come across these user analytics platforms, which are very much focused around uh, using data analysis to get into what's happening with the user base as a whole, you know, like, and in wireless, it's important to do that because if you've got, you know, 250 users and they migrate around your app, your estate, or maybe you've got 25,000 users, how do you know, you know, if they keep switching from base station to base station, how do you know that the base station in that corner of the building is actually partially, is intermittently faulty? And the only way to do that is to start doing data analytics and saying, you know what, when these users are connected to that base station, they're reporting, you can see that the, the TCP flows are being dropped and that sessions are being dropped and that they're continually reauthenticating or, you know, whatever the case may be. Therefore, the problem is with the base station, you know, the wireless access point, not with the clients, the users themselves. And that's the sort of data analytics that's starting to emerge that, or that, that Neansa was promoting to us. Yeah, I think the takeaway I got was that um, when somebody calls the help desk and says the network is slow, that's not very helpful. And so what Nyanza is providing is a little bit more information to help you find out, well, what are we actually talking about? Is it an AP? Is it a client device? Is it DNS? Is it some other piece of the network? And we've got some metrics and some statistics that can help you start to pinpoint and then focus your troubleshooting instead of just trying to you know, start from zero and nothing. Yeah, and I think that if you're an enterprise that has if you're either like, let's say, you're a university, then they're known for having massive wireless deployments and you know user focused, or you're an enterprise that has a lot of physical locations that have a lot of people. I think that's the kind of thing where, because I've seen network engineering teams just get consumed by, you know, so and so in this group, they, you know, everybody, 100 people crowded around, you know, three APs, and nobody can get any work done. And so, you know, teams that would normally be focused on architecture or data center get tied up in, you know, the, the wonderful 30-person conference call trying to figure out, okay, why is it, why is it not working? Why is the wireless not functioning? <laughs> because you've got 100 people connected to a consumer-grade AP. Yeah. Right, that, but the yeah. And the problem is getting distilling down to that information sometimes is really difficult right. because your average engineer, most network engineers, unless your wireless is your focus, you know, I, you know, you don't deal with signal to noise ratio or co-channel interference or trying to be like, oh, well, you know, you're you're connected to an AP that's like, you know, three times further away than you should be, and you're tying up resources on that physical medium. But getting to that is hard if you don't know what you're doing, you know, or it's not your focus. Yeah, and then that's true. Like, if you've got a consumer AP and you think you've got all the, you plug this in and you can start to see why the consumer AP is dropping its guts, or you can see the impact to users of why the of the AP dropping its guts and not not able to handle that many endpoints or not able to handle that amount of volume. And it's very difficult to troubleshoot that because the consumer AP doesn't even have the telemetry to tell you that it's sick. It just goes, they didn't write the code for that to say I'm full. It just drops its guts and reboots. That's normally yeah, no, consumer. Like in a Cisco controller, I normally have to dig into debug and go into a bunch of really you know deep level metrics to pull that kind of data out of it, and then make that analysis as a human. But if you have a system that can do that mm. for the teams that it's relevant, I think that's a, I think there's a need there. Yeah, but a, but a, a a professional grade or you know a, an enterprise grade 
wireless system, they have debugs and logs and error alerts. You know, like if you reach the maximum number of clients, it throws that this thing can sustain. Or if you reach maximum CPU or if you reach, you know, they have written that that into their software so that it goes, I'm sick, I need help. Whereas a consumer-grade device doesn't do that. So the only way that you can measure that is to use tools like Nyansa to actually watch what's happening to the user experience. So regardless, so if you have a multi-vendor wireless system, maybe you've got a mix of you know, vendors in there for whatever reason, the only way you're going to be able to pull something together is to have user experience monitoring, not network monitoring. Because trying to correlate uh, statistics or metrics from different vendor platforms is just like that's de- that's death on a stick. That's just <laughs> right. No, no, and it, it's a good point because you think about how, a lot of times how do we troubleshoot? A lot of times I know you know you you get all this information and you don't know whether you can trust it. And a lot of times I'll say you know get me into the user's desktop. What what is the act? Let me see the actual problem that you're having. This is a more automated version of that. Kentech is talking about they've got a something that's really uh, really interesting, which is the the cloud processing of data that comes off the network. So they're very focused on the BGP, on the internet, on the DDoS type of stuff. Uh, do you think that's got – I'm not sure what question to ask about Kentic because it's very hard to explain to people what Kentic Networks does. But they do network visibility and performance. Is there something that triggered you on this, Kevin? Yeah, I think the – well, the peering analytics for me, and this is maybe not as, as as a common use case in the enterprise, but because I deal in the service provider world, looking at the ability to dissect the AS path and see what the more efficient AS path flows would be for um, maybe if you're a larger enterprise and you have a lot of peering points. I mean, you know, some enterprises that I've dealt with, they may have, you know, 30, 40, 50 public, you know, AS peering points and you're dealing international. So that may be a helpful exercise if you want to say, okay, I need to understand, you know, am I getting the best bang for my buck going from the United States to Europe in a large enterprise that, that may be helpful. But I think well, maybe you've got a website and you're delivering services and you want to know, uh, are your customers getting traffic off at, at speed? Uh, over right. the internet, you've got no way of knowing. There's no visibility into the internet, and that's what Kentech kind of gives you. It does, and the carriers, if you deal in the carrier world, there's a lot of tricks that they do, especially in international traffic, to try to force things into the cheapest route possible. So having that visibility to understand what you're getting in the way you're interconnecting, like you said, to deliver that experience, I think there's a lot of benefit there. Well, and for me, the thing with Kentech that stood out is the volume of data, not, not only that they collect, but they keep. So, I mean, we are all in, in the enterprise world used to tools that uh, you can only keep so much data. And, and so uh, you, you'll have a monthly roll-up, or you'll have an every six-month roll-up. And then if you need to go back a year ago because of some sort of security event or some legal investigation, you just don't have the data anymore. But the fact that uh, Kentech keeps all that data, and so you can go back and say, hey, you know, a few days ago, so-and-so had this issue from this location, and you can track that through all of your loggings and metrics and see what really happened um, and have access to all that data. Um, I can see huge value there for organizations whose job is to provide uh, reliable connectivity and, and who have to know when things go wrong. Um, you know, in, in the enterprise, if somebody doesn't um, get their email uh, this pull, they'll get it the next pull. And, you know, we, we have to do some calculation as to how much effort we're willing it to, to, to put into figuring out why it didn't work, you know, two minutes ago, but it works now. Um, but but in some organizations, that's huge. And you have to know. Um, and I think Kentuck is, is a phenomenal solution. I, I wasn't familiar with them before yep. um, Tech Field Day. And um, it was... I, I really 
um, was impressed by their offering and, and the solutions they provide. It's one of those tools that if you need it, you need it. And uh, the thing about the internet is there's been zero visibility into the internet for many years and people have been putting together like, you know, if, if the, where does this traffic come from? You know, does this IP, if you're looking at inbound flows and trying to analyze them and say, you know, I'm having pr- slow performance from a given AS, maybe I'm having problems from traffic coming in from Indonesia. How do you know that, right? And Kentech is one of these companies that can provide visibility into that and start saying, well, that comes from this source. But it also came across this path. You know, we know that there were flows across it. And and now they're adding to their portfolio and saying, now we can do DDoS detection and mitigation. That is, we can analyze the traffic flows as it crosses your router. And now we can start to say, right, there's definitely a DDoS thing. And then we'll integrate with third parties so that you can now actively... Um, switch your traffic away to the mitigation engine. So for those of you who aren't doing DDoS, normally the way it works is in normal mode, your traffic comes directly into your your internet front end and everything just works straight up. When you go into a DDoS event, you trigger it and the traffic gets diverted to a mitigation service who then clean it and then send it on to you. And there's two things here. One is uh, the mitigation service has to know what normal traffic looks like, so you have to work with them to keep refreshing their template of the word normal. That is because your traffic changes over time. And the second thing is, how do you detect that there's a DDoS event? Some companies just invoke it manually when people complain that the system's gone out. But increasingly, we need to know that you know you're being flooded with a denial attack, you know, massive amounts of TCP opens or you know NTP reflection attacks or DNS lookups, you know, whatever it might be. And you need a tool that can actually just click, oh, yes, this is, fits the pattern of a DDoS attack, and now I need to invoke my mitigation. Now, however you want to do that, Kentic can help you with in, in a, activating the mitigation service if you want, but you might want to do it manually anyway. I think it's there's lots of different, you know, once you've got network traffic analysis and you've got performance monitoring, you can now actually start to add these niche services off the baseline of DDoS detection because you're already analyzing the traffic and then activate the mitigation service so you can apply some automation postpartum if you like. Well, and this is the kind of data I would love to see from um, an internet access provider for us because we'll have transient routing issues, right? So-and-so couldn't get to such and such website for a certain period of time and then it magically starts working while the rest of the internet works, right? I mean, what, what happened? Was there an issue along the path? Was there a routing issue with our provider? Um, and, and so that we can provide some sort of root cause analysis and say we know why this happened and where. But but now a lot of times we just have to throw up our hands and go, you know, the traffic made it to our network edge. And we know we sent it on upstream. But I can't mm. tell you what happened from, from there. Yeah. Um, and, and I would love to see that kind of visibility from, from our carriers. Well, and, and, and bringing back, circling back to SD-WAN to bring this back into the conversation, if we're going to look at shifting all of our WANs to more of the Internet or maybe one day entirely the Internet, then you've got to understand what the Internet's doing. So these, these to me, in my mind, these two perfectly marry together and some of the other things that we're looking at. Agreed. All right, so let's um, switch to our fourth category that we divided all these vendors into, and that's orchestration and automation. And there were two players who really fell into this bucket in our minds. One was Anuda. And Greg, do you want to tell us a little bit about Anuda? Yeah, so a lot of the times we talk about automation. So people write programs and say, you know, I'll automate configuring an interface or adding a, a VLAN or something like that. But really what you need to be thinking about is, how do I add a VLAN when I need to add a server when I'm deploying an app because I'm adding a database server? 
So the act of creating a new database server should automatically trigger a whole bunch of actions all the way down to creating a VLAN and firewall rules and things. And that's the difference between automation and orchestration. Orchestration is about this systemic end-to-end awareness. And for those of you who've done public cloud, so you you know you wander off to Azure or Google Compute, and you clicky clicky, and then all of a sudden you've got an instance. But underneath, you know that that interface, there's a whole bunch of things happening. You know, there's public IP addresses being public IPv4 or public IPv6 addresses being allocated to you. It's being you know added to your contain. You've been containerized. Your tenants agreement set up. You've virtual machine is connected, and then the network is run down to the machine where you know all this stuff happens without you knowing about it. That's orchestration, and mostly. To Today, we're still futzing around with this piecemeal approach to automation. Even the SD-WAN stuff that we talked about still wasn't quite orchestration, although it's starting to get beyond automation. But what Anuda's been building is an orchestration platform. So literally build a platform, build the portal on which it runs, and then it'll go down and talk to your VMs. It'll talk to your servers. It'll talk to your network switches. It'll talk to your load balancers and configure them all as a piece, as a unit. So you can configure these workflows, which says, I'm bringing on a new service, click, and all the things get done. VIP on a load balancer, firewall rules, routing, VLANs, all that stuff can all be done as a single thing. And um, I, I just, you know, Anuda's been around. We've been doing, you know, disclosure here at Packet Pushes. We did, uh, I don't know, we've done two podcasts with them over the last four or five years. And, you know, that product has actually seemed to have got a lot more traction when they talked about who their customers were and the sort of customers they're working with. Now, I was actually getting the sense that, They've really gone from people don't understand to now we've got a whole big customer roster. I wonder what you guys think. I think the promise is thrilling Mm -hmm. Um, because one of the great things about Anuda is that it will sit um, on top of uh, legacy infrastructure um, and more modern infrastructure and orchestrate all that together. I mean, I think they're still growing. I think they're still adding products to their portfolio that they support. Um, but I think um, it, it uh, gives us hope for a way forward that it may actually be possible to orchestrate a large network in a way that, that makes sense and that isn't just an engineer saying, okay, I have these CLI commands I want to push out to all these devices, go. Um, hmm. it ha- there's more intelligence in there to combine configurations across platforms so that you can really say, okay, I want to deploy a VM, go. And then it it understands all those different pieces. It can integrate with IPAM. It can integrate with all these other tools um, to to give you a holistic um, approach to your network. And it also has a programmable interface where you can, um, you know, tell it what to do um, if you have a strong DevOps person. So, um, I think it's really interesting. Um, it's difficult in the enterprise space to um, to say, you know, this is the tool going forward, and we know that they're going to be around, and we know that 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 this is the platform we want to build our business on. But um, the idea is wonderful, and I, I hope they succeed, and I hope they do well, and I hope that these kinds of concepts make their way into the enterprise space. Hmm. It, it, well, you know, the system has been around. It's been proving itself out. They've been picking up customers at, at a substantial pace. So it is certainly possible that, um, you know, that we will see this take off. And I know that, you know, at the end of the day, the public cloud is about these systems, right? That it's about how do you make these things automatable so that they get done that way, right? 
Yeah, yeah. And so the challenge for me, and the reason I say it the way I do, is in the enterprise space, you're, you're going to somebody to make an argument that, hey, I need this orchestration framework. And they're mm -hmm. also looking at business apps that they need to deploy. And they, you know, and so I, th I think the challenge is how, how do we as uh, network engineers, as technologists, as architects, make the argument for this kind of tool that it really is going to enable the business. Mm. And for me, that's the challenge. It's not, is this a good tool? Is this going to do what we need it to? Is it a great platform? Absolutely. H how do I make that argument to the business to where they see the value in something that they don't really understand? I mean, I guess I would argue that the the way that kind of happens is, you know, as you know, virtualization is obviously key in the enterprise data center now, and, and containerization seems like it's going to be a thing. And part of that is driven by speed. We need new applications up quickly. And if the network continues to be the sticking point that, okay, we, we've got the application infrastructure up and running, but we still haven't plumbed into the network, and that's going to be two weeks because everybody needs to go out and touch some CLIs and set up the VLANs and do the firewall policies and stuff. If you can compress that two weeks into you know two hours with an orchestration framework, you've, you're starting to build a business case. Right. Yes, I agree with you. I think it's the portal. So to me, it's always been that, that if you're going to build a public, public cloud, you have to be able to build a portal that is going to let you orchestrate these things. You can't just, you know, I'm going to, uh, you know, it's a bit like I'm, I've made an automatic gearbox. That's not very helpful if you don't have an engine and a steering wheel and a chassis that can handle the automatic gearbox in a car, right? Mm -hmm. and, and so in a sense, this is the direction that you have to take is that ultimately we might automate the pieces, but eventually you have to start joining up the automation pieces to make an entire private cloud because the point of a software-defined data center, the point of a private cloud is developer comes along, clicks a button, and things happen. And that ultimately is where we have to be. And I think Anuda is a step in that direction, if you want to take a look at that product. Yeah, absolutely. And the fact, and the thing that's nice about it is that it doesn't mean the networking silo is, is giving up control over how it wants to design and build the network and have its policies. What it's doing is building this container of designs and policies that they hand over to the developer side and say, click this. So, so you still retain that. You, you, you keep this sort of what you need to do on your side, but you also make it easy for people who shouldn't be touching the network. And that's an important point, Drew, because I think when you, if you're dealing with things like SOX compliance, PCI compliance, whatever compliance is relevant in your world, one of the questions I think I asked to a couple of them is, you know, just because you can, can, should you? And, and can I limit that to a reasonable degree to say, I want it to be automated, I want to know about it, and then I want to say, yes, I, you, know, you should be able to do that, and then the automation completes its task. But at least there is something to be said for making sure we manage the automation orchestration because you can get into a security nightmare if everybody can do everything without any kind of oversight. Hmm. But, I mean, that's part of the pro promise of automation and orchestration, right, is that a lot of your uh, maybe audit compliance issues, they may not go away, but they, they certainly change because um, you can point your auditors to a system and say the system always does the things we do. And so, we, you know, we, we, we don't The auditor have, doesn't come and sit down at you and say, what does this access list mean? And you're looking at them going like, who knows? <laughs> yeah. Right, right. And, 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 What's and, this IP address? And, don't know. It's been right. there for 10 years. How could it change? <laughs> so, so you're well, pointing you have to your auditor well, that to would this system. It. 
as opposed to saying, yes, when our people go in and make changes, these are the processes they follow, but there's always the risk of them fat fingering an IP address or that when we decommission a service that somebody doesn't make a request and the rules don't get pulled out or I mean, that, to me, that is the great value of, of an automation and orchestration system on top of what we've already talked about is that audit and compliance, right? Your answers are there in that engine. They will tell you everything yeah. we've done, who did them, the, the people had the rights to do what they did or they wouldn't have been able to do it, um, all of that. Well, I think that's what I'm driving. That's that's kind of the point I'm driving at is that you've, you've got to be able to weigh, you've got to be able to to design it in such a way that you can have automate the majority of things. And if there are really critical, sensitive things, you want to make sure you've got some kind of oversight there, so that because I I can see you getting into you get this into the average enterprise and then you enable all this automation. You know, I, I can see you getting into some issues where you you may create security risks for yourself if you don't very carefully design that flow and that workflow. Yeah. I mean, the problem we've always had, it just yeah. moves it to a different place. I mean, people have always been able to do stupid stuff, and they're going to continue to be able to do stupid stuff. Right, um, and now they can do stupid things at the push of a button, so it's, it's, right. it's really awesome. Right. <laughs> but, but people you know, have written scripts and stuff that are supposed to automate certain things, and if there's a problem in the script, you change it. And if you've got, you know, if a NUDA or some other orchestration system serves as a repository, at least you're limiting the stupid stuff to one place where you can go and fix it. Right. Mm. And and you have a record of what stupid happened, right? <laughs> yeah, there you go. You've got a you have a finger to point. That's yeah. stupid. You have a you scapegoat. That's what, uh, uh, and that helps sometimes. <laughs> it can be good. It can better. be bad. Yeah. Well, you know, it's like a zombie attack. You don't have to be the fastest person. You just have to be faster than the slowest person in the around you, right? <laughs> so. Yeah. That's, that's what it is. Um, uh, there are things where these orchestration tools are very useful, especially with businesses that have very rigidly defined things. And a lot of managed service providers like SD-WANs are very useful to be able to have orchestration platforms like a NUDA in place where you've got to orchestrate all of the WAN circuits and track all of the WAN circuits. Like one of the big challenges with SD-WAN is if you start having a branch office with two or three internet connections per site, then all of a sudden you've gone from one carrier to three carriers and you've got an administration problem. Uh, it's a good problem to have because you're still saving a lot of money, but you still need engines that are going to orchestrate the turning up of circuits and you know devices and asset management and then adding services. And if we start managing NFV instances at the edge of the network, the old days of doing it manually just aren't going to scale. I mean, we're talking about more networking over the next 10 years than we've ever had before. More networking devices, more functions in more places than they've ever, you know, Historically, networking has been really, really simple. In the data center, the switching, you put it in once every 10 years and then you ignore it. And there's a bunch of DMZs and you spend the next 10 years working on the DMZ and the load balances and the web firewalls and that sort of stuff. And maybe every five years you futz around in the campus and give it a bit of a, a bit of a kicking. But that's it. That's really your enterprise IT life. The future of it's going to be much more complicated. You're going to have functions on switches, functions in virtual switches, in devices. You've got wireless. It's going to be more of it. And I think probably the diversity of products that we saw at Field Day tends to, to call that out. There's no winners or losers here, but there's a lot more products than there was before because there's a lot more networking than there's ever been. And maybe that's a nice way to, to bring in Juniper as the last company we're talking about in the, the automation bucket. Um, and this could also tie back into, Yvonne, that comment you made earlier about you know making sure the network isn't engaging in self-harm when it's providing you information about itself. And that seemed to be very much the message coming out of Juniper's presentation. They were very much about 
making the network more automated, more like a self-driving car, and providing you all kinds of information through telemetry and control and orchestration and, and ways for the network to communicate with you about what's going on. And then for you to push back into the network some automation tools to get stuff done. Is there anything that jumped out at folks about Juniper and what they had to talk about? I thought their use case of, um, it, of course, it was something that's, you know, a really kind of off the beaten path of the enterprise. But one of the use cases they presented for the systems was the ability to dynamically uh, build dynamic QoS, which I know is Greg's most favorite topic in the entire world. But <laughs> to, you know, to be able to take one of the problems you have, we do a lot of work in commercial wireless. And that one of the problems they were having with satellites is you get what's called rain fade, where when rain hits, certain frequencies um, attenuate when the rain falls. And so traditional QoS, where you think in the data center world, you have a fixed um, you know, a 10 gig is 10 gig and one gig is one gig. And that's always what it is. Well, in the RF world, the speed can change all the time. So Juniper kind of applied their, their, you know, automation and orchestration systems to solve a very complex problem in the world of commercial wireless, which is if my satellite link has suddenly reduced capacity from 100 meg down to 65 meg because there's a thunderstorm, you know, somewhere over, you know, Southern Europe, then I need to be able to dynamically react to that. So I thought that was a really neat kind of, you know, pie in the sky use case to, to, uh, to highlight because it's a really hard problem to solve. So being able to take that kind of a system and apply it to that kind of really high complex problem, you know, paves the way for us to be able to deal with some other things in the data centers. Because if you can solve a problem like that, certainly there's a lot of problems in the data centers we can solve with that kind of technology. Yeah, I think uh, Juniper's presentation was was also very centric on the things that they do now that people don't know about. So they have a whole bunch of capabilities around, um, you know, the Junos, and it's already a highly programmable operating system. It's already much easier to use than iOS or some of the others. And it was really about emphasizing that functionality, I felt. Yeah, absolutely. They were definitely unpacking the capabilities of Junos. And I think it was married with the CLI, wasn't it? I think I remember them highlighting that everything they were doing had a tight integration with the CLI syntax and the automation so that if you understood one, you would well understood the other. Mm. Yeah, and I think this rolls back around to the, the beginning of our SD-WAN conversation where we were talking about the, the advantages of user interface in SD-WAN. I think that needs to catch up in some of the other tools that we're looking at. We looked at a lot of code during the Juniper presentation, and, and that's great. You've got to have great code, but but it, it also is going to have to be accessible, I think, to your average network engineer, because we're, we're going to be dealing with more systems, more complexity, more devices, um, and we, we've got to have a view into that functionality that's accessible. I think for me, maybe that was some of the challenge with Juniper's presentation, not, not the technology, but, but how do we make it accessible to a network engineer who has a problem that they need to solve mm. and, and, and doesn't yet have the skill set to uh, interact with, with a programmatic interface. So you're saying we all need to learn how to code because we've been fighting it for 20 years? I did not. I did not <laughs> say that. I, I think I think coding skills are helpful for anybody who wants them. But I also think not everybody <laughs> who manages a network is going to be a developer. You know, I think that's actually a good critique and something that resonated with me in seeing uh, Juniper's presentation is that if you have those skills, if you're comfortable with Yang models, if you're experienced with NetConf, if you're used to working with XML or JSON or things like that, then Juniper may be the operating system for you because they'll give you all the tools you need to start pulling uh, metrics and telemetry off the boxes and the devices to see what's going on. I think mm. maybe what they need to do a better job is is packaging it up for folks who aren't quite there yet you know, yeah. with those programmatic interface skills. I do feel the market's kind of 
you know, we talked before about the graphical interfaces and this GUI and the the actual devices themselves that sit in the data in the forwarding plane are, remain important, remain critical, and the effectiveness of a good operating system. But the shift is, uh, I I need to be able to use these devices, not operate these devices. How do I make applications work? And I Juniper is still focused on building, I don't know, like the eighteen wheeler trucks, when really what I want is to just know that my Packages are getting from point A to point B, and if I can put them in a in a a family sedan, I still don't care. You know, if Uber suddenly turns up and starts carrying packages from one place to the other, do I care if it's an eighteen wheeler trucker or a, or a four axle light light van? Do you? And and I just wonder if that that's a hard sell these days. Yeah, I wonder. I mean, maybe it's because they play so strongly in the service provider market, where maybe the providers mm. have the staff on hand to to dig into the. The guts a little bit more than the enterprise. Mm. I don't know, but they're definitely like producing. You know, the APIs. They talked about their APIs and they talked about the software they got the support in Python and you know all the different and the the, the toolkits that we use that that people who are automating using like SaltStack and Ansible and so forth and Napalm and so forth. But it it just at the end of the day, I think the glamour that Juniper can bring to the presentation when you're sitting next to companies like Anuda and Silver Pit, right, Riverbed, um, <laughs> SD-WAN and, you know, Kentic, some of the glamour just gets lost, I think. Uh, Presentation-wise, absolutely. I mean, if you watch a Juniper presentation and then watch a Riverbed presentation, it's like watching, you know, uh, a Hollywood production versus some really, um, you know, nerdy guys in their backyard shooting a video about yeah. bugs or something. <laughs> I'm not too. <laughs> I mean, there is that too, but it's also that um, you know, Juniper's talking about bread and butter technology, uh, whereas some of the others were you know glamorous, leading edge, coming soon, you know. <laughs> uh, and so it did. It's very difficult to try and elucidate the value of what Juniper's putting forward because we kind of already know it because most of us are using it. So. Yeah, I mean, maybe it's that they've done the hard work of being able to expose all this information, and what they need to do now is kind of pretty it up a little bit for the rest of us. Hmm. Yeah, I think part of it's an enterprise marketing play because in the it, coming from the service provider world, this whole concept of SD-WAN, we didn't call it SD-WAN, but you know, the you know, orchestration automation and steering all that in an automated way has been around forever. Every carrier just built their own system. And for those that use Juniper, which is a lot of them, you know, they've built a lot of proprietary systems around it. And I think Juniper's recognized there's value to that kind of thing in the enterprise, but they're working on figuring out how to package that and market it to the enterprise, which may not be as sure of where's the value in this, how do I use this, whereas carriers, I think, have always been sold on it. Well, I mean, it's clear Juniper has always had a more programmatic approach to the configuration of their devices, and I think that's a great thing. Um, not not all networking vendors have looked at the world that way. Um, I think I, I think it's it's a packaging and a presentation problem more than anything, um, mm. because you want the core to be solid and to be programmable. Um, but I think the the industry's moving beyond that now. I mean, we've proved we can pass packets, right? I mean, we've been mm. doing that for a long time. Um, so it, it's time for a next inter- iteration or an evolution. Yeah, you have to turn those packet forwarding of packets into a service. It's not enough to just forward packets anymore. Um, and so if you're going to elucidate the value, you're going to have to come up with a really great story around how your product does that. 
So, I mean, I think they did a great job. They, they certainly reminded us that telemetry is hard in the device and, you know, capacity and that they've got these great toolkits out there. So it's worth watching. And they've got some really interesting stuff coming, like, um, with their software, with some of the things that they're working on. But, again, hard to know. Okay, so I think we've probably done this about as much as we can take. What do you think, Drew? Yeah, um, let's uh, let's let's cut a, let's cut everybody mm-hmm. loose. So let's get into a bit of a wrap up here. Uh, so any closing thoughts, Kevin? Yeah, I think um, what we saw at Network Field Day, um, not only was it great, but it also everything fit nicely for me as far as how these solutions are all converging together. The 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 use case for SD WAN, the use case for white box and merchant silicon, and then the analytics and telemetry. For me, it seems like they're all headed toward a convergence of these are the technologies we want to look at deploying. So it was a useful uh, trip for me. I think it was fantastic. Yvonne. Yeah, uh, much the same, I think, um, from a SD-WAN perspective to see what, uh, what uh, Silver Peak and Riverbed are doing, um, how they're tightly integrating the user interface was huge. And I, and I think we're seeing some overarching themes in the industry. People are moving more toward orchestration, automation, solid user interfaces, programmability, um, and to really break the, the stranglehold that the network industry has been under for a decade or so uh, from an innovation standpoint. Um, And to look at the network as more of an integral part of the entire uh, IT stack. You know, it's it's not just this thing that sits on the bottom that everything rides on top of, but that the network can interact with the layers above it and that it can provide more value. Um, visibility is huge. So, yeah, there was a lot to take away from um, the Networking Field Day event, um, and uh, there's there's still a lot to know and to learn, and the industry's uh, shifting and moving. Uh, the challenge will be for us to, uh, to move along with it and to convince our organizations uh, that there's value there. Well, on that note, why don't we wrap this up? Drew, um, where can people find you on the internet? I blog at packetpushers.net, and you can also follow me on Twitter at Drew underscore CM. And Yvonne, can you tell people where they can find you on the internet? Sure. I blog at esharp.net, and you can find me on Twitter at Sharp Network. And Kevin? Uh, I'm at StubArea51 and StubArea51.net, and I also blog on the Packet Pushers. (laughs) <laughs> Thanks very much to you for joining us today and giving us your time to share what happened at Networking Field Day. And of course, thank you very much to the Tech Field Day crew for inviting us all to participate in their fantastic event. It was just, as always, it was wonderful and pretty awesome. So thanks to Mr. Foskett and to uh, Tom Hollingsworth. Really appreciate your hospitality and the time you take to make those events possible for us. As always, you can find this and many more fine free technical podcasts on, along with our community blog at packetpushes.net. Follow us on the Twitter is at packetpushes. We've got a page, a company page on LinkedIn. We've got a company page on Facebook. Please follow us there. Don't follow us personally because Facebook doesn't like you to follow us as people. And, of course, if you could rate us on iTunes, that would be great because it really helps us to find more people, which then allows us to keep producing these fine podcasts. And as always, remember that too much technology would never be enough.